The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Andrew Zaitlin. He is the founder of Moneyball Economics. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Jordan. So let's start with your background a little bit and what led up to uh, the founding of Moneyball Economics. Well, it, what, what really what really kicked it off was me losing a fortune in the stock market <laughs> during the recession. Um, I was a victim of my own belief in that what I was hearing from the Wall Street pros was accurately reflecting what was really going on. Um, so what happened is, you know, I was hearing everyone say, you know, it's in the great words of Ben Bernanke, it's all contained. Now, I didn't believe that necessarily. I, common sense, I'm looking around, looking at property in Silicon Valley going, there's no way that the local strawberry gardener can afford this million-dollar mansion. I unfortunately pulled the trigger too soon, bought far too many naked short puts, and basically lost a fortune, but learned a lot. What I learned was Wall Street's perception of reality is not really the real deal. And so I, I have a big data background, and I set out basically leveraging the big data background that I have in my economics background to say, well, let's, let's take a look at the data that really matters. You know, sort of do the money ball thing, uh, what they did, sabermatics, and, and say, look, here's how the game of baseball really is being played and won. Here's how points are really getting put up on the board. And this is the data that really matters. These are the metrics that really matter today, not from some dusty old textbook that was based on stuff 70, 80 years ago which is, by the way, what most benchmarks today are. They're, they're almost 70 years old. They reflect the, a horse-and-buggy economy more than the digital economy we're in. So people hear a lot about big data, but they're not really sure exactly what it is. Maybe you can kind of describe uh, what the whole movement towards analyzing big data is about in a way that the average person can understand that they can learn from it and improve their investment and other kinds of economic behavior. Wow, I'll try, I'll try my best. So big data is a real catchy way to say, thanks to the Internet, there's a lot of information out there. Everything and anything is a data point. So, for example, I could go on eBay, and I could start tracking comic book sales on eBay because they're just, they offer that. If you want to know what's being bought or sold on eBay, you can do that. The problem is there's so much information out there. What is the information that really matters? I'll, I'll tell you off on the side, you know, when we learned that the NSA has been picking up every single data point of everybody, I wasn't worried because, you know, it's just too much data. They can't really track what's really going on. So in that sense, big data is everything that's going on under the sun, and the challenge is coming in and making sense and finding out what is the data that really matters. So let's go back to that example of comic book sales on eBay. I could get that information. In theory, maybe I could go back a few years with that information. Well, comic books are a luxury item, right? It's $100 for a Silver Surfer comic book, for example. Well, maybe that price point moves up and down over time, 
And maybe what I could do is I could find out, does that price point move up and down in a way that correlates to the economy? In my mind, conceptually, and I think, you know, all of us would say, yeah, you know, in a sense, if I've got more money burning a hole in my pocket, I may not be able to buy a yacht with that money, but maybe I can buy something else that's collectible that is, that is my equivalent of a yacht. That's, that's my splurge, my feel-good spend. And maybe that's a comic book. And for a lot of people, it is, because eBay sells a lot of comic books every day. And in fact, if you think of it statistically, there's probably more comic book buying going on on eBay as a collectible than there is for a lot of other things that are being tracked and, and presented as, as some kind of benchmark we should watch. So to net it out, all of us are doing some kind of economic transaction, whether or not we think it's an economic transaction or not, or whether or not we think that it can be converted into some kind of economic benchmark. What I'm doing is I'm coming in, and a lot of the data is, is doing this, is coming in and saying maybe this data point is a proxy for something else. Maybe there's something, there's a signal going on here. Um, and so that's what I set out to do, is to, is to go out and find out, you know, in, this, in the world we're, we're in today, the 21st century economy, where are the financial transactions happening? Well, they're happening on eBay. There's activity happening on Twitter, on Facebook, lots of places. And those are actually the places where Wall Street can't look. They have certain limitations on the information they can digest and process, institutional firms. And that's kind of the opportunity that I like to explore is what's the real world and, you know, why aren't folks looking at it? So we'll get into a lot of details about the different ways you're seeing that. The whole term Moneyball came from the movie uh, where uh, Billy Bean was analyzing data to put together a winning baseball team without having to spend a lot for it. Maybe just get into a little bit, as, as it applies to your situation, about what he was doing that was unique compared to other baseball managers who were trying to do the same thing, put winning baseball together, uh, baseball teams together at cheaper prices. What was he able to do and what tools was he using uh, that kind of the average person might understand that you are are using in analyzing more economic data? Will do. So it actually comes from a book by Michael Lewis, uh, Moneyball, and and I just want to make sure your listeners understand that I look like Jonah Hill. I I look like Brad Pitt, rather, not Jonah Hill. I see. I see. Well, that's good to hear. Yes. Um, You know, it it follows the path of a couple of things. On, On the one hand, it's the story of not really being so much as this guy at Sabermatics, this he was never a baseball player. He was the consummate outsider, but he had a passion for the game. And he was very much a data-driven uh, statistician. He came in and said, we've got 100 years of baseball stats. Why aren't we looking at this as a wealth of information? And he was coming into a, a place where they had the insiders. They knew what was going on, of course. And they might say, hey, you've got a left-handed batter coming up. What kind of pitcher do you want to put in place against a left-handed batter? They'd say, well, you want to do this. Well, the sabermatics data would say, wait a second, we have 100 years of history that say, in fact, you're wrong. You're flat out wrong. Statistically speaking, you will look at a better result if you do something differently. Well, naturally, when you have the outsider coming in, the insiders resist that. So that's part of the problem. But ultimately, what made it successful, not the opportunity, right, is when everybody else, when conventional wisdom says you're wrong, but you can prove that you're right, that's your opportunity. That's the investing opportunity. Wealth is created simply because someone saw something that everybody else didn't see. I mean, ultimately, that really is what's happening, a, a perspective. Some information, and has that changed? Is, is what Billy Bean and the statistician did using sabermatics now the conventional wisdom? Has that become uh, the Absolutely. traditional way of doing things? 
the proof was in the pudding. After a few years of proving, and it wasn't just leveraging the data. What was going on is they were looking at different metrics. He came in and said, what you want to really look at is, is, is how someone's getting on base, how they're moving. I mean, ultimately, what was going on fundamentally was a recognition that baseball, the game itself, had changed. In the old days, in the 30s, when Babe Ruth was playing, a pitcher pitched about 100 pitches. You fast forward to the 80s, the world of steroids, the world of gyms, it's taking a pitcher 140 pitches to close the game, which means the pitcher isn't going to last the game, which means you're going to have volatility. At some point in time, that pitcher's tired and has to be taken out. So the nature of the game had to, was changing. You were basically exhausting the pitcher. And so the batters, the guys who were driving in runs, weren't the Sammy Sosas of the world. That was exciting. That put butts in the seat. But what won games were the players who were sitting there going, you know what, I'm going to work this pitcher. I'm going to make him do a full count and just get him closer to that 100 pitches where they get exhausted. And typically that happens about the seventh inning. The nature of the game was changing. And here you had a guy coming in and showing who's going to be best able to work that pitcher. What kind of player, what kind of combinations. He just threw a lot of statistical horsepower at this information and said, wow, look at this. We can win games. Now, at the time, this is this pure outsider stuff, fresh pair of eyes, Billy Bean bought into it. He bought into it for a very important reason. He was a guy who fresh out of school was, was the talent agents came and said, you've got everything on our checklist that's going to say you're going to be a great ball player. And Billy Bean was never a great ball player. So on the one hand, you've got these talent scouts saying, oh, we think you're going to be awesome based on our metrics. But it didn't play out that way. So you had Billy Bean going, you know what? I don't believe in the old school metrics anymore. I have reasons not to believe in it. And then, of course, necessity being the mother of invention, he said, well, here's a guy who's coming in and saying the old metrics are wrong. I personally have had experience where the old metrics are wrong. Let's see what these new metrics can do. And as we know, the Oakland A's went on to win pennant after pennant after pennant at a lower price point. It's kind of like so how has that affected the game now? Since, that, since the old, um, you know, how, how has it affected things uh, since then? Well, everyone pretty much, what's his name? Um, Epstein went to the Boston Red Sox. So, that, you know, obviously everyone wants to cherry pick the superstars who get sabermatics. And so a lot of baseball teams are now following it. So if the nature of the game is we're going to find the players who can achieve the following things according to his metrics, then boom, they start getting bit up again. So, it, it, again, like, it's like I was going to say, it's like Independence Day, the movie. You know, if you look at that movie, that was a blockbuster, but every single star in there was a B-lister. Will Smith was not an A-lister at the time. Today, you can't afford Will Smith in your movies practically, but back then you could. So by a comparison, same thing in baseball, the players who could get on base, who can create the opportunities to get the runs, weren't were, were being fairly priced. Now they are being fairly priced. And you still have your A-Rods out there. You still have the, 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 the players who are exciting, and they're exciting and they're overpaid for a very good reason. They put the butts in the seat because at a certain point in time, you've got baseball the game and you've got baseball the sporting event. And let's face it, the, the bread and butter is getting butts in the seat. So it's fun to have your home run hitters and your, your big, big league players and the guys who are getting you know, all that attention, but they're not really the ones who are winning the games. They have the so moments, you, but it's, so it's, the, the reason you call your company Moneyball Economics is you're taking the lesson from that and applying it to more general economic things, which is challenging conventional wisdom using data analysis. Is that correct? That's right. It's a very data-driven approach. It's also bottom-up. We create our own data. I don't mean we create it out of thin air. We go out and we harvest it ourselves. We're not waiting for someone else's report that came out two months after the event and blah, blah, blah. Basically, the goal was to, starting point was to say, let's be data-driven in our approach. 
let's not be married to a set of benchmarks or set of data that somebody else has said is critical. Um, one of the advantages I have is my background in Silicon Valley, uh, working with a lot of companies here. I've had the opportunity to really have a firsthand experience in, in the supply chain of the world. And what really is being made and how it's shipped and who's buying what. And that's primarily semiconductors. In the old days, it was steel, concrete, oil. These days, semiconductors is the universal common denominator in everything. You can't make anything without using a semiconductor. And so you can track that. You can track capital goods. You can track a lot of things through that prism of semiconductors. And my experience there gave me insight into what is really going on in today's economy. How are we harnessed to China, to Taiwan, to Germany? And how do things flow? When do they flow? But secondly, it's that awareness that there's a gap between that understanding of how the real world is functioning in Main Street and the experiences that might be shared elsewhere. You know, folks who haven't had their feet um, on Main Street, who have a different concept of what's going on. And it's been very interesting coming in as an outsider. You know, again, even though I'm a trained economist, I did my big data play working in industry. It's been interesting coming in as that outsider and sitting here for, for a long time saying, look, here's how the real world operates. And let me share with you what that means downstream. You know, where should we be looking if we really want to get our finger on the pulse of the economy? Um, at the same time, I do forecasting. I, you know, I forecast the major economic benchmarks, and I tend to beat most of the, the folks out there who are forecasting, you know, whether it's payrolls, uh, jobless claims, retail, you name it. I tend to be uh, one of the leading forecasters out there. So the proof is in the pudding that you know, it's kind of like sabermatics. I can come in with great ideas, and I can come in with what I think is the right way to look at things and what the data says should be, but ultimately it's all about performance. Having established that performance and track record, I'm, I'm able to now come back and say, well, why is this happening? Uh, why don't we have inflation? You know, why, you know, when will we have inflation? Things like that. And I can use this awareness of what the 21st century economy, how it's really operating, you know, what we buy, how we buy, where we buy, how all that has changed. And, and to note, for example, that, again, coming out of Silicon Valley, having, you know, I, I helped to create uh, executive dashboards. I know what the dials are on a Fortune 500 company CEO's desk. I know exactly what they look at when they walk in first thing in the morning. And it's interesting how that data is not really the data that Wall Street looks at. Very so good. We're going to take a break. That. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Andrew Zaitlin. He's the founder of Moneyball Economics, and their website is moneyballeconomics.com. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. 
Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Andrew Zetlin. He is the founder of Moneyball Economics, and his website is moneyballeconomics.com. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thanks again, Jordan. So one area you cover is what's called the vice index. Uh, so maybe describe what is the vice index and what kind of information can be taken away from it to give a sense of what's happening in the economy these days. Okay. So the vice index is a weighted index that looks at four basic spending. One is narcotics, prostitutes, booze, and gambling. So it's, it's a quantification of the U.S. consumer spending on those four things, basically tracking a few million data points each month. Let me put that into context. Everyone knows, everyone knows about discretionary spending. We always hear about that. You know, if I've got money in my pocket, I'm going to go spend it on something fun, you know, wants versus needs. Well, the pinnacle of that spending is luxury goods. It's one thing to say, hey, I've got some money in my pocket. Let's go to a movie. It's quite another to say, I've got money in my pocket. Let me spend, you know, 800 bucks on an iPod or you know, whatever they're running these days. Point being, one person's luxury item may not be another person's luxury item. Yachts are a luxury item. We could track things like that. And, and in fact, there was a fund that was tracking um, luxury spending. But they were tracking Sotheby's, and Tiffany's, and stuff that, that doesn't really apply to the 99.9% of Americans out there. So it wasn't really informative. You know, how do you get to that canary in the coal mine? That's always my objective, is how do I get to that data that gives me visibility to what's about to happen, not what's already happening? And luxury, every economist, everyone out there knows you have to be an economist knows luxury spending is the canary in the coal mine. People will spend more on fun things when they feel good, and it's the first thing they pull back on when uh, there's trouble ahead, when they need to do belt tightening. So I set out to identify in a quantifiable way what's really going to be you know, luxury spending that cuts across every socioeconomic population out there. Again, if, if I wanted to track Bordeaux wine drinking, that's a luxury spend, 100-something bucks a bottle typically. But there's only about 100,000 people in the U.S. who buy aggressively buy Bordeaux wines. 100,000, it's a good number. It's not great. There are somehow, I, I think I've heard 17 million people who smoke marijuana in the U.S. That's a bigger number. 
I'd rather track that number. But a lot of this is illegal. I mean, or illicit. They're not exactly reporting revenues. Maybe in Colorado and Washington they are, but a lot of the places, marijuana and prostitution, the same thing. How are you getting reliable data on the kind of black market uh, going on in these things? Well, that, that's the secret sauce. And, and I'll just say that I have to do the heavy work so that my clients don't. I, I put myself out there and just make sure as an observer that I'm able to get that information. Um, yeah, it, it's hard to get to, but I, I cracked the code. And I'm okay. able to grab it. I, I, you know, it's the secret sauce. If everybody knew, but it's all, it's all legal. I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm not standing on street corners with a clipboard interviewing uh, anyone who walks by kind of thing. It's, it, but it is very much uh, a quantifiable thing. And there's and, like social media ways of, of finding out what's happening in these areas. Well, it's, it's, it's quantified. Now, it, and that's the key. It's not qualified color. It's, it's, it's in hard numbers. I mean, there mm-hmm. are... Um, you know, there are ways that you can go out there and get this information. You know, uh, let's face it, you know, when every, every, everyone knows that the adult industry, for example, is at the cutting edge of technology. Whenever a new technology emerges, DVDs and Blu-rays, you know, whatever it is, Google Glasses even, the adult industry is going to be there. Um, so what I do is I, I, I'm able to harness the data. It goes back about 20 years, and it has – uh, a extraordinarily strong and predictive capability when it comes to consumer spending. I convert it, actually. Uh, I, I provide that index on our website, Moneyball Economics, and, and we do some, some write-ups and, and look at some of the color play-by-play. What I also do is I convert it into my retail forecast. You know, every month we, re- we have a forecast that comes out that says, here's retail spending, and this is what the consumer is doing. Um, so so what, what, is yeah. the lead, what is the lead to consumer retail sales? Is it a month or two months in advance what the Vice Index is doing that you can then see later? Over two months. Almost three months. Three, so three months in advance, you have a sense of the direction of retail sales using the Vice Index. Absolutely. Now, there's going to be some shifts like uh, along the way when you've got a weather storm or something, that's going to change things, right, or a sequester that hits. Yeah. What, what, what happens is it's a cash-based economy. When, you know, for example, let's talk, uh, you know, let's talk marijuana. You know, except for Colorado and Washington, if someone wants to buy a bag of pot, they're, you're talking a cash exchange. All right, so on the one hand, I have to have the money burning, not me personally, but you know, the, the, the consumer has to have money right now in cash. There's no credit card. It's expensive. You know, it's after taxes and all that stuff. So you start working your way backwards. This is not a frivolous moment. I really have to feel that I've got the money today and tomorrow, basically. It's a, it's a comment about what my cash flow is both in the near term today and then a couple months down the road. Same thing with the supplier. If the phone's not ringing off the hooks, that supplier has to generate income. There's no line of credit. They can't sit there and say, you know, go to the local bank, you know, like a uh, you know, steel uh, company might do and say, geez, you know, things are a little tight. Let me take out a loan, a 30-day loan. They can't do that. And so you can really quickly chart whether or not, and, and so it's a cash-based marketplace. You can chart in real time whether or not there's a lot of demand or a little demand, whether it's accelerating or decelerating. I even did and what, a what have been the latest trends that you're seeing? Well, I did a survey over the holidays, actually, where I, I did basically what the Federal Reserve does, goes out and talks at the regional level to about 100 manufacturers and says, what do you think the business outlook is? How is your business? How are your clients doing? Uh, how are prices? Where do you think costs are going? Things like that. I did the same thing. And the feedback I got was very interesting. What I got back was there is no inflation. There's no costs are not going up. There's no need to raise prices. The margins are not getting squeezed. And what was interesting was that was today's view and tomorrow's view. 
when I asked also, what about your clientele? Uh, are they, do they have a lot of fun money and they're going out and, you know, uh, booking more time or, you know, spending more? And the answer, this was very interesting. The answers were twofold. One, no, demand's neither accelerating nor decelerating. We are in a very much steady-as-you-go economy, and they're not hearing their clients talk about big bonuses or raises or anything like that. Steady-as-you-go, no need to raise prices, no real ability to raise those prices. Why? This was the second part of the answers that I got back. Oil. They almost exclusively were saying there was almost going to be a pullback in spending, but the gas pump dividend has made people feel a lot better. And so all of a sudden they feel a lot more wealthy. It's a wealth effect of sorts. It's a reverse tax, right? It's like a tax cut. And that's what we're, that's what we're seeing. That is going to last us for a long time. You would think, well, wait, if we're putting money back into the pockets of the consumer, we should be seeing inflation, right? Because people are out spending it. The answer is not really if they were already on a defensive course. If, if, if a consumer was about to pull back and you give them a little bit of money, they'll spend it, but it doesn't shift their overall stance. And so I think what we're doing right now, what I'm advising folks is we're, we're going to experience a head fake. Consumers feel good. They've been handed some money. It's finally trickling through the economy, but it's not going to last. And gas prices aren't really falling anymore. And all the associated downstream you know, ways that that gas price helps us, that's going to play out over a couple of months, and then it fades again. So you're saying the one area, though, that, that is showing increase is pot and cannabis growth. Is that correct? That's got more robustness than the other vices. Of all the vices out there, and we have, to, we have to be careful with pot, and we have to discount a little bit of it, just because right now in Colorado is experiencing pot tourism. I mean, imagine that everyone who used to go to Amsterdam to smoke pot suddenly said, I'm not going to Amsterdam. I'm going to fly out to Colorado. If you go online and look up Colorado marijuana or pot tours, there's a laundry list of companies right now that say, look, tell you what, I'll pick you up from the airport in the limo. I'll have, I'll have joints already ready to rock and roll. I will take you on a tour of local cannabis clubs. Or if you're here to go skiing, I'll take you to the slopes. You get high, do whatever you want, ski, and I'll take you back to the airport. Don't worry about it. This is now tourism. This is literally a destination. It's, you know, in a sense, I've always, I used to go to, to New Orleans. Uh, I love Mardi Gras. That's adult Disneyland. If you've ever been to Mardi Gras in New Orleans, it's, you know, everyone converges, spends a lot of money on food, on drinking, music, all this wonderful, fun stuff is going on, but it's a destination to play. It's Disneyland for adults. In the same sense, Colorado is positioning itself as a Disneyland for people who want to fly in, smoke pot. And you're talking about hotels, restaurants. They're going to make a big, big, big killing on this. But because it's kind of, they're the only game in town. Who wants to fly from New York all the way out to Washington? And once you're in Washington, what are you going to do? Colorado's in the middle of the country. It's easily accessible. They've got skiing, a lot of stuff going on in Colorado. They're going to dominate this tourism because ultimately there aren't a lot of states out there where it's legal yet. And so, you know, until so you're saying because of the, it. you're saying because of the tourism, it's almost distorting the strength in the vice index to some extent. I'm sorry. I got distracted. Yes, that's exactly it. So, so it's a unique situation where the marketplace is finally emerging. And so no, it's, it's just going to go through the roof. And so we've got to be really careful when I take that data and incorporate it. I, I'm obviously managing through that distortion yes. of all the vices out there. It's, it's kind of a standalone off on the side because it is so unique. It's just it's so amazingly different, and it's being promoted. It's not just a passive, yes, you can get high. Today is, is April 20th, and I'm not sure if all listeners know that 420, April 20th, 420 is the magic code for marijuana. 
all weekend long, there has been in Colorado festival after festival after festival celebrating cannabis. They are making a lot of money this weekend. It is pot tourism. That's unique. We've got to be careful with that. But all other data points are showing that in general, consumer spending is there. It's showing two things. Consumer spending is there. It's slowing down a little bit. I think some of that, though, was uh, a little bit of, of delay lag from, from, from the snowstorms. But in addition to that, we've got to understand that a lot of the key data points that we hear, like consumer sentiment or retail, what they're missing is tourism. When you actually look at how the retail numbers put together, it doesn't look at travel. It doesn't look at gambling. It doesn't look at hotels. And there's a shift in consumer preference going on right now. People aren't buying things. They're spending their money on experiences. Mm-hmm. Right now, if I, if I tried to go to Disneyland right now, I wouldn't be able to get a ticket. I mean, it is, yeah. it is incredible right now. I, I just looked at, at trying to fly on vacation to Cancun. Gas prices are down. Ticket prices are up. What is going on? It's unbelievable. I mean, and we're talking not prime season. It, the demand, if you, if you, for example, looked at the... Recent so so that's where people are spending that extra money from gas is on experiences, that's not products. Yeah. Yes. So a, a, lot of, a lot of conventional economists will sit there and they're not familiar with how these metrics are put together. So part of my job as a bottoms-up guy is to say, well, you know, let me tinker with this. What, how does this really reflect today's reality? Oh, here's how it reflects today's reality. And I didn't mean to poo-poo other people. What I meant was, you know, I, it's my job to be a mechanic. I've got to know how that engine is built and what's going to make it run. The thing with retail is, it doesn't really talk – it talks to who's going into a store and buying something. It doesn't talk to buying a ticket and going to San Diego or buying a ticket and going to Miami and enjoying my time there because there will be only one area of overlap. That's restaurants. And that's where it gets interesting. If you look at the retail number, everyone's been talking about how weak it is and it's, it's stagnating. Within that retail number, if you look at outside uh, drinking and dining – it's in the double digits of growth. It is the single biggest growth. So it's the experience you're saying. Yes. Very good. Oh, we, we have to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Andrew Zatlin. He's the founder of Moneyball Economics. His website is moneyballeconomics.com. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in government, the legal arena, and the business world impacts your business every day. And we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of it all. Each week, we'll bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers and leaders. Squire Patton Boggs will be your guide as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join us for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Channel each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. 
It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Andrew Zatlin. He's the founder of Moneyball Economics, and his website is moneyballeconomics.com. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thank you for having me today, Jordan. So one area you do uh, a lot of analysis on is payroll data, and this is different from the traditional unemployment numbers and payroll numbers you see. Uh, How do you analyze payroll data, and what are some of the uh, implications you're getting from what you're seeing today that might have investment implications? So the, the key thing, you know, what we all would love to do, and, and the key, key important part of payrolls is obviously more people being hired, more money's making its way in the system, and, and so on and so forth. Um, we are a consumer economy, and so if we can know if there are more consumers or if they feel good about it, about the economy, then you know, that gives us a lot of great information. So what I, what I do uh, is I collect a lot of that raw data. I think I collect a few million data points on labor alone, where I try to track who's doing hiring. So I look at small companies, and I look at publicly traded companies as well, and I, I basically come up with a way to calibrate that data to every week's jobless claims, as well as the monthly payrolls. Um, so, for example, in the latest payrolls where, where things were kind of bearish, I was the most accurate. In fact, I think for this quarter, according to Bloomberg, I'll be the second most accurate guy out there out of 100 economists for predicting payrolls for the quarter. And what's interesting about that is I was the guy who was saying, you know, payrolls aren't doing that well. And then the most recent payroll release, they, the government turned on and said, geez, you know, we overstated payrolls by almost 15%. And it brought it back down to almost exactly where I said it would be. And, and the reason I, I, I'm able to do that, it's not because I'm me, but it's because, again, I'm going after the raw data that really matters. And in today's world, you know, there's just a lot of places where you can go to get this data that are not included in a lot of the official or mainstream approaches. So what I'm doing is I'm, I'm trying to just harness the information that we have out there and, and put it to work. Right now, to your question about what, what's it telling us right now, well, it's telling us that employers are still hiring. However, we've got to really start getting a little defensive. I believe that based on the data I'm seeing and the data I'm pulling and what the conventional mainstream benchmarks are telling us, we are in the eighth inning of a nine-inning baseball game. The Time to start paying attention to when we should head for the exits is approaching. There are a couple rules of thumb that have historically, again, to keep that baseball you know, metaphor going, you know, they've been batting 1,000%, you know, where time and time again, this is exactly what the first signal will be right before, you know, a couple months before the stock market starts to shudder, a couple months before we, quote-unquote, get to the official recession and so on and so forth. And so right now, I'm seeing data that says companies are still hiring but they're hiring at a slightly slower pace. 
Because traditionally, uh, employment is considered a lagging indicator in that people lay uh, off after things have already turned on. Not, they don't normally see employment as a leading indicator. And, and let, me, let me explain why that is exactly 100% wrong. And I think that's what's interesting is, again, we go with conventional concepts. The idea is, okay, a company is getting the right margins that they need to justify hiring, or they're seeing a growth, and so they're going to start hiring. It really is about the mechanics. I, I told you earlier that I'm really focused on mechanics. So let's, let's talk about what really happens. Payroll comes out you know, a month or so after the fact. So the most recent glimpse that we had at payrolls went through March, the middle of March, March 12th. By the time it got released, it was early April. So in essence, what we're talking about is stuff that was happening in February for the most part. Now we can look at it in April. So mechanically, it's lagging. It's, it's older. Uh, another reason why we often say, you know, academically, we could say businesses start seeing, you know, upside and then they start hiring. So academically, it's a lagging factor. In reality, the way the mechanics work, it's actually a leading factor if you know which data points to look at. So jobless claims, which come out every week, tell you in real time whether employers are hiring or not. So the advantage is we don't even have GDP released for the first quarter. That means it's going to be late April before we get a visibility to what was happening in January, way after the fact, January, February, way after the fact. Whereas with jobless claims, if you know how to read them, you can have your finger on the pulse of what's happening today. And oh, by the way, companies start hiring and firing, and that shows up in the reports. But the way companies really operate and the way you know it's really a leading factor and not a lagging in the way it's reported, I have to say in the way it's reported, Economically speaking, it's lagging, but in the way it's actually coming out to us as data, it's actually leading. And here's why. When you're at a company and you've got visibility to what the, the top line or bottom line is going to be, and it's not fitting your perspective, meaning it's either going to be better than or worse than, you start turning around to your sales team. You start collecting more information about what you should do, but you already know for a fact, for example, let's say it's slowing down. Let's say we're, we're Halliburton. We know that oil's kind of tanking. We know our customers aren't happy. Well, we're going to do some slowing down of hiring, right? That's not going to show up necessarily yet, but we're going to make that decision internally. Guys, push out some of the hiring requests. Slow it down a little bit. Tap the brakes a little bit. But that data doesn't show up yet. It takes a while. But if you can get in there and start picking up on whether or not there's acceleration or deceleration, whether it's CapEx spending, hiring, or whatever those data points might be, Companies are throwing off those signals like mad. Now, every 90 days, a company that's publicly traded is required to sort of open up and share some of that information. So right now, we're right deep in earnings season. But the truth of the matter is, earnings season is, is not the starting point. It's the end point. Every CEO knew weeks ago, in fact, every CEO today reporting their earnings for last quarter knows exactly what's going to happen this quarter. So what are, you, what are some of the trends you're seeing as to industries that are adding significant amounts of employment or cutting back on employment uh, that probably is not widely known? Well, I'd say construction. A lot of people think construction is just going through the roof. If it was, they'd be hiring a lot more, and they're not. And I've known that for a couple of months now. You can track construction companies, home builders, whoever, you know, whatever flavor you want. Sorry, it's not a weather thing either. It's been happening well before weather came in. The demand for housing just isn't there. Whether it's affordability, I don't know the reason. I'd be very wary there. Um, you know, I haven't really looked at the segments yet. How about the tech sector? 
tech sector is always hiring, unless you're in some, some specific areas. Semiconductor equipment companies, for example, haven't been hiring for a while. Um, it's really interesting. Anyone in the high-tech sector who's in software seems to be hiring a lot. Anyone who's on the hardware side is slowing down. Semiconductors seem to be slowing down their hiring. Um, but, you know, you're talking now about global trends versus U.S. trends. And that's also where we've got to be very focused because a lot of the hiring doesn't take place here. So if you're Nike, for example, you're not really hiring in the U.S. for something that's going on in Europe. So you're looking so, at global trends more than U.S. trends. I look at both. I just want to make sure that we're, you know, there's a nuance there. Sometimes when we're talking about the S&P 500, for example, I think, I think the statistic is 50. Uh, most of them get 50% of their money offshore. So you've got to be really careful given some of that. So, for example, are you saying the strong dollar is slowing down hiring of U.S. companies with big operations overseas? It's going to be slowing. So, so, okay, it's like real estate. Location, location, location. Hiring in the U.S. is local, typically for local demand. Not all the time, but typically the hiring we're going to see in the U.S. is going to reflect U.S. demand. But having said that, when we look at stock picking, you know, if I were, for example, to say, well, let's look at Coach, you know, a high-end uh, uh, maker of, of ladies' purses and so on and so forth. Okay, but they're very global in nature. A lot of their business is actually coming out of China, out of Europe. And so I could sit here and say their U.S. business is doing really well based on uh, the spending they're doing in the U.S., the hiring they're doing in the U.S., all the data points that are operational data points. I can sit there and I can say, this is what's happening with Coach in the U.S. But let's talk about the rest of the world, what's happening outside. And that is where the dollar comes in. That's where the dollar impact is going to have uh, more, yeah. of a, more of a feel. Um, but yeah, you can. Only, but, I mean, you can. You, you can certainly see in the commodity space. There's been a long. It's not over. Anyone who thinks that the pain of, of the commodity or energy space is done. No, more layoffs in the oil patch and then mining and that kind of thing is what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, let, let, let's take a step back. Um, the U.S. CEO. An executive team is compensated through stock options for the most part. Okay. What that means is they're being measured on how that stock performs. So the CEO comes in in January and says, hey, what's my pipeline looking at? Brings in the senior vice president of sales. The senior vice president of sales looks at him, and they have a tops-down view from finance. They have a bottoms-up view from sales. And they say, okay, here's where we're going to be. This is our strategy going forward. I now have some sense of what my sales will be, so I now need to make sure that I hit a certain margin target why? Well, I've got to show growth, right? Because the stock ultimately, I'm graded on my year-over-year -year growth. Did I push it up 20%? Forget the revenue. That's an enabler. At the end of the day, the market only focuses on the earnings per share. So I've got to get some constant type of growth there. And the way I'm going to do that is either by growing my sales or by managing my costs. When you're talking about managing your costs, you're talking about operating expenses, including things like capital spending and hiring. So at the beginning of the year, every CEO, every publicly traded company is starting from the standpoint of what do I need to do from my hiring and equipment spending that's going to get me to that magic EPS that I need to hit? Why? For the good of the company? <laughs> no. For my pocketbook, baby. For my wallet. Because yeah. I'm making my fortune off stock options, which in turn only go up if I can generate that growth. Indeed, it's, it's ultimately self-interest. Okay, we're going to take a break again. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Andrew Zatlin. He's the founder at Moneyball Economics, and you can find out more at moneyballeconomics.com. We'll be back after this.
from the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Andrew Zatlin. He's the founder of Moneyball Economics at moneyballeconomics.com. Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thank you again. Appreciate the opportunity. So tell us a little bit about the website, Moneyball Economics. What are some of the things they can find there? What's free? What do you charge for? Just kind of give, give people a little bit of what they're going to expect when they go to that website. Well, every week we're going to it's, – it's for free. You come in, and if you would like to have uh, the opportunity to get it, uh, an email report to you directly, go ahead and subscribe. Otherwise, just come on down. Every week you're going to see uh, a report that I do, again, data-driven. But what I'm trying to do is help – straddle the, the Main Street and Wall Street worlds and, and help folks who are retail investors or wealth managers, whoever it might be, understand what is the data that really matters? What is the street going to trade on? What are the trends that are coming down that could possibly cause us to want to change our positions, rebalance, do whatever? Basically, how can we be better investors by grabbing the right data? And what is that data telling us? Um, so, for example, we're going to be putting one out, I believe, uh, later this week or, or early next week. Why am I, why am I, Andrew Zatlin, personally still in the stock market today? What is it that I'm looking at that's going to tell me when it's time to get out? What is it that I'm looking at that's telling me to stay in? And you know, it's, all, it's all using the numbers, using information in a way that we can all look at. We don't have to be rocket scientists or economists or bankers to grasp what's around us and what's common sense and what's been working since time immemorial. So the average person could go to moneyballeconomics.com, get a sense of the trends, and invest in or out of things based on the conclusions you're coming to is what you're saying. Right. Now, most of the time, I'm not going to get you to third base. I'm not going to say, and therefore, you should buy Intel or yeah. and therefore go long gold. But, um, I mean, obviously, anyone can, can look at this and, and extrapolate for their own portfolio. You know, if I'm saying uh, a dollar is going to get pricey and it's going to go up, and what does that mean for commodities? Well, then you can draw your own conclusion. That can't be a good thing for commodity prices or you know, these kind of things. But, but there are, from time to time, I will share what my investment thoughts are. Um, and, yeah, I'm just trying but, to help. But the, the idea is it's unconventional. These are things that you would not typically hear 
from traditional economists at big Wall Street banks. Yeah, I'm not deliberately looking at unconventional, but what I'm finding is that, again, mainstream conventional data points are 60 to 70 years old. We can't rely on them. We've got to come in like sabermatics, like Moneyball. We've got to come in and say, this is the data that really reflects the reality around us. And so, yes, it's going to be unconventional. One of my favorites is using semiconductors. You know, I can look at semiconductors in a certain way that tells me, uh, you know, if the economy is growing or, or not, if it's slowing. Um, you know, it's kind of like, if, to, use it, to use a quick example, it's like looking at cars. If I want to know, is GM selling more cars or not, I could wait for GM to tell me, or I could go look at how many car tires are being purchased, because you need four tires per car. So I can move upstream and look at rubber production. And what is the semiconductor number telling you now? Semiconductor number is telling me we are in the eighth inning. It is slowing down. It's telling me that the EU and Germany are firmly in a recession. Don't believe the data you're seeing. They are in a recession. That's pretty much why they started breaking out the bazooka. It's because Germany saw the writing on the wall and said, oh, my God, we're looking at a recession. Japan, so irrelevant to the world stage from a trading manufacturing standpoint, it's not funny. Japan is crumbling before our eyes. Um, Korea, Taiwan, doing very well, but they're starting to slow too. And since they're very export dependent, as is Germany, as is Japan, problems. What it doesn't tell me that much about is China, because China, unfortunately, is a mishmash of stuff. But what it indicates, with a little bit of fuzz, indicates China's been doing worse than we suspect. But they're, they're, they're doing okay. The U.S., actually doing pretty well, but again, slowing. It's, if, if the message had to be there, it would be slowing growth. It's just a question of who's slowing the fastest. We're not all slowing in synchronization. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, right now, China, they're heading towards a recession. Germany, Europe, in a recession. Japan, in a recession. U.S., probably going to make it through the year without being in a recession. So what are some of the big trends in technology? Since you're in the, the Bay Area there, um, you've seen oh all God. these internet companies go public and the growth of uh, Twitter and Facebook and uh, LinkedIn and all these websites with huge valuations, a lot of private market valuations uh, for Uber and so on, just Air Airbnb, you know, just soaring. Um, is this a, a bubble or is this real? I and mean, What is oh, your yeah. sense of the technology space here? Uh, this, this is the third bubble I've witnessed where things are crazy. There is crazy money going on here. I mean, the level of valuations. Yes, it's a bubble. And that's because globally, Silicon Valley is now a destination for a lot of money. We've got the governments of Singapore, Saudi Arabia throwing money at Silicon Valley in ways they didn't used to. So it's even gotten, it's a level of exuberation that, well, we've seen we, 2007. Um, now, the good, the good part is when the stock market crashes, those valuations will come back down because, again, at the end of the day, everyone wants to cash out. IPOs. Well, you can't really do an IPO in a, in a down market, so valuations will come down. Technology, though, when you're out here, oh, my God, Teslas are everywhere. I mean, these are expensive cars. They're everywhere. This is a land where it's exciting. I have to tell you that. Everyone out here is trying to change the world, make improvements, get, you know, and you're part of things that you know, when I go out back east to see my family, you know, it's kind of frustrating because I'll sit there and say, what do you mean you don't have this app? Or why, why, aren't you, why don't you guys do this? What, I can't order this food and have it delivered. You know, all these things that you experience in Silicon Valley because we are kind of a crucible for technology. Um, having said that, again, a lot of it is driven by this fast money, high yield, and that, that dries up pretty fast once the stock market fades. Um, so you're saying for individual investors it's dangerous to be buying into – 
the leading, uh, a Tesla, a LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, all these companies that have done very well, you think it, it's overvalued in a bubble that could burst at some point? Uh, you know something? I don't know what they're coming out with in terms of next-generation products. Let's talk about Apple, for example. Um, wearable devices. Okay, these are these fun these watches. Now, I know they're going to sell a lot of watches because it's what Apple fanboys do. They, they buy Apple stuff no matter what it is. But to be honest, it's half-baked. It's not ready for prime time. And so, therefore, if I were out there, I wouldn't be buying Apple. Um, personally, and we're talking personally now, my money is not in things that are, uh, ooh, shiny object, let me buy, because consumer products, you know, they come and go. You know, Samsung is beating Apple. You know, these things can change overnight. Four years ago, HTC was beating everybody. Consumers are very fickle. Where I put my money, and I do happen to have money in the stock market in some names, um, I don't know if it's appropriate to share or not, you tell me. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm just a talking head. I like, I like choke points. I like oligopolies. I'm an economist. The place where a company is going to be able to charge the maximum dollar they can get and, and maintain margins is going to be when there's really not much competition. Um, and so I look at things in the value. If the entire world is now using mobile phones and smartphones and, and tablets to, to communicate, to conduct business, to have fun, to watch TV, to watch sports, whatever it is, if everything is going down this pipeline and needs data and, and security, to me, there's only a handful of companies out there that can really claim to be part of that food chain. And um, again, I would be talking my book, and I hope that's, you know, with, with all That's all right, but this is like the, the cable companies, like a Comcast and no, Verizon? No, 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 they're, they're limited. They can't raise prices. Akamai. So Akamai, if, if, if you're not familiar with it, Apple, for example, uh, they don't manage the networks. They outsource all Netflix doesn't manage networks, really. What they do is they outsource it to companies like Akamai who say, we will guarantee that if someone wants to stream a movie from Netflix, it will be on our servers. We will guarantee that they can stream it. They have no competition. They have no competition. Oh, there are companies out there that say they do what they do. They don't. They have no competition whatsoever. And so what that means is if anything is going down a pipeline, that's part of the internet. It's going across Akamai's servers. So they have this headlock. Netflix, great news last week. They announced that they're going overseas and they're, they're, they're kicking, they're, they're, they're just doing such great business overseas. Well, guess what? They're pulling Akamai with them. So, okay, Akamai, we have about a minute to go. In addition sorry, to Akamai, yeah, what would be another truck point company, as you call it? I think LinkedIn is another one. I think they, they've achieved a certain level of opportunity, but I think the core one, the one that I love, is Arm. So Arm is a company that's sort of the opposite of Intel. They're playing in sort of the same space. Every time you use a smartphone or a cell phone or practically a set-top box, anything out there, Intel has not been able to establish any traction. It's Arm, Arm Holdings, ARMH. And what they do is they, they design these chips and they license them. Anybody and everybody can take their designs and build their own chips. So companies like Broadcom, NVIDIA, Samsung... Everybody's out there, Qualcomm, and they're using ARM technology. Going and they're giving forward, license here, fees to ARM is basically that it works. They license yes. them. And, right. and they're cheap. They're low power. They fit the bill for everything about the world of tomorrow, whereas Intel, as we saw from their earnings, if it's not PC or server, they're, they're struggling. And, in fact, they're struggling in the PC space. Very ARM good. is all about the future. Very good. We have to company. end, unfortunately. We've covered a lot of ground. My guest this hour has been Andrew Zatlin. He's the founder of Moneyball Economics. Lots of interesting things we talked about between vice and chips and all kinds of other things. Uh, you can find out more at his website, which is moneyballeconomics.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Take care.
Thanks very much, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.